So if you have a Bible with you this morning, how about if you go to the book of Genesis? Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. And my great hope is that we're going to gain an eternal perspective this morning. We're launching a new series. If you're new to New Hope, it's called Eternity to Eternity. And we're essentially walking through the entire Bible. Genesis to Revelation, if you haven't been here in the weeks leading up to it, um, the reason for it is based in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 13, in which God states this truth, from eternity to eternity, I am the Lord. And so we need to start out there with getting an eternal perspective this morning. And so we're going to be walking through the scope. As I said, it's like a survey of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, not all today, or you would never leave here. We're going to start with just a few verses, actually, with just a few words. Along the way, what we're going to do is look at philosophy and history and archaeology, and there'll be lots of stories that'll help the perspective of God come to mind for us on what I hope to be a daily basis for you as you work through the workbook that Rich has prepared. So Rich Bruce, he leads discipleship here at the church. He and his team put together this little booklet. If hopefully you picked it up this morning, they're free. They're at the doors and in the atrium when you leave this morning. If you didn't already get one, you won't need it during the service, but you'll want it for the week ahead of you. And there's questions in the back for small groups. If you're in a small group already, you can be part of a small group if you're not, but if you're in a small group, there'll be questions in there to guide you. And along the way, I'm going to give you questions to dialogue about, things that you'll want to discuss, maybe even at lunch today. So we'll bring those up along the way. My desire is, as I said, to help you to gain an eternal perspective in view of the things that we carry with us each day. I don't know what you came in the door with this morning. I don't know what kind of stressors you had in your life this week. Was it a person? Was it money? Was it politics? Was it the pandemic? Is it all of the above? You don't have to say out loud, especially if it's a person. It's just the kind of thing that immediately in the moment I mention it, it pops in your mind. You know what they are. It's those kind of things I want to keep in view as we talk about this perspective of eternity this morning. So before we do anything else, I would ask you to pray with me. We invite God to anoint the study that we're about to do together. Would you join me in that? Let's pray. Lord God, we recognize that just by mentioning your name, we find ourselves ushered into your presence. And it's not that you are not already with us, because you are. You promise that you're always with us. But the reality is that when we mention your name, it puts us in a perspective of the reality that we're before you. And so we come before you with the cares and the concerns that we have on our hearts. And it seems like we're always repetitively asking things of you. I love worship so much, Father, because we get to declare things about you that are true. You are holy. You are majestic. And we've been able to put that to song. And so thank you for the worship that just took place. But we turn our attention to your word and to what we're about to take on, this challenge of walking through the scope of your word. And we pray that you would cause it to come alive. We know it already is because your, your, your presence within it, you, you call it alive and active and sharp. 
So, Father, I pray that you would bring it to life for us. Cause it to do that. Cause it to do the heart surgery that you designed it for. We also ask right in this moment, God, that you would allow us to set aside mentally those things that we carried in the door with us so that it would not be a distraction, but rather we could focus on what you want us to see. We pray for all these things in the majestic name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. At times, people will say to me, you really make the Bible come alive. And while my overinflated ego really appreciates that, reality is I know the truth. The Word of God already is alive. It's alive, it's active, it's sharp, sharper than a two-edged sword, Scripture says. So it does things, it does heart surgery, it, it divides, Scripture says. It pierces as deep as the marrow. It, it does surgery on our hearts. So I realize that I can maybe be passionate about it, but my passion actually comes out of the reality that it's God's Word that makes me alive. But wow, does it trigger hard questions. As we saw over the course of 18 weeks during the course of the summer, and then over the last two weeks when we worked through the issue of God's wrath, we really understood that God leaves us with lots and lots of questions. And seemingly, He's quite pleased to leave some things a mystery. Like, I have mysteries in my mind. I'd love to know, where is the Ark of the Covenant? He's not going to tell us, apparently. And there's things that I want to know He chooses not to reveal. So He seems quite pleased with leaving us hanging. But where I can know, and where we together collectively can understand, I am driven to dive deeper into these mysteries. And so I find myself in the place regularly where I have to pray against the potential that I would have complacency in my life, and that I would stagnate. Anybody else identify with that, or am I the only one? There's, there's this potential that we can just kind of stagnate on the things of God, and we find ourselves absorbed with the things of this world, especially when stressors come into our life. We can very quickly waste three hours watching a football game, which has no meaning whatsoever in the scope of eternity, and then wonder why we spend all the time doing that. But the reality is God also uses those things to course correct us. I have to pray against the complacency issue and against stagnation. I want to know more of who God is, and I want to know more in return of who I am in relation to my place in His eternal plan. So my desire for you in eternity to eternity is exactly the same for you. Now, strangely, it comforts me to know that the characters of the Bible also struggled with these issues. Many face the exact same issues I've just mentioned. Moses' encounter with God left him with more questions than it did with answers. And one of his biggest questions was, what is your name? Just trying to wrap his mind around the presence of God. Now, thanks to Hollywood, we have these visual images in our mind of God's encounter with Moses on Mount Sinai. And perhaps one of the most famous scenes from the Bible is actually captured with a guy by the name of Charlton Heston and, and God on Mount Sinai. If you're younger than 40, you wonder who Charlton Heston is. It's just a pretty famous movie star, okay? But years and years gone by. But that image is indelibly burned in your mind of God interacting with Moses with this long gray beard on Mount Sinai, and Moses crying out, what is your name? You may recall the setting. Maybe it just popped in your mind when I said that. And the response from God in the midst of Moses' question, 
Let me just back you up a little bit before he asks the question. At the encounter, right at the very beginning, when Moses first encounters God, the Lord God told him what he is. Look at me on the screen at this at Exodus chapter 3 and verse 4. God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So he's telling Moses what he is. I'm the God of Abraham. And he states that he has this ongoing relationship with Moses' ancestors, and he lists them off for him. Did you notice that God did not say, I was the God of Abraham? He's the God of the living. He's not the God of the past. Rather, he states it in the present tense. I am the God of Abraham because he's the eternal God, not the God of the past, not the God of the future. He's the God of the present. I hope you get your mind around that in just a moment. He's the God of the living, not the dead. Abraham lives right now in this very moment in the presence of God's eternal presence. Your relatives, your family members, your friends who have died in Jesus are present in God's presence right now in eternity. And this is such a profound truth that Jesus hammers it home by quoting it thousands of years later to a group of people who think they have God figured out. They think they've got God in a box. They understand what there is to understand about God. And Jesus has to say, you're wrong. Look with me at this, Mark 12, 26. Have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. If you work through this conversation in the book of Exodus from 4,000 years ago, you find eventually by the time you get to verse 13, the hard question comes. Moses comes to him and finally says to God, I, okay, I, I know who you are now. I, I, I know what you are because you said you're the God of my fathers, of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. What I need to know is, what is your name? And he specifically asked, because in the ancient world, your name is your character. The two are synonymous. If you called someone a name, it was specifically representing their nature and who they are. So name represents character. It's not like Moses is coming saying, should I call you Bob or George? And I don't mean that disrespectfully. He's just confused about what to ask. He's asking in the most direct way possible, what is it that describes you? This is God's response, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, what I, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Do you think that Moses stood there with a dumbfounded look on his face? I'm guessing. Like, uh, okay. Um, see, Moses is not a theologian at this point. He's known God less than an hour. He spent 40 years in Egypt as a ruler and raised in Pharaoh's house, and then 40 years in the wilderness wandering around with sheep. 
and this is his first encounter with God. So he's by no means a theologian, and he's left with this I am title. Would, would that help you if you were completely new to God? Well, it would help you if you knew the scope of the meaning behind that declaration, the declaration that this is God's eternal name. Exodus 3.15, look with me. This is the very next verse in the conversation. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Yahovah. For the Jewish people, it was too holy to even pronounce. So they would come up with a tetragram, Y-H-V-H or Y-H-W-H. They, they, from this point forward, didn't want to profane the name of God by even saying it out loud, so they would substitute it with just the initials, Y-H-W-H, Y-H-V-H. They knew it represented Yahovah. To know this one who continues to call you and I today from the burning bush of our soul, to know this one who rescues us from the taskmaster of sin in the person of Jesus, to know this one who rescues for us and puts us in a place where we know there's a promised land waiting for us in the power of the Holy Spirit, to know that one in the full scope of his name, you must begin at the beginning. Actually, before the beginning. So Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. In the beginning, three words in the English world, one word in the Hebrew word, Bereshith. Bereshith bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. Bereshith bara created Elohim, God. We'll, we'll come back to that in just a minute. It's a really big statement that Moses records right there in the beginning of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the very first book, in the very first chapter, in the very first sentence, in the very first word of the entire Bible, you have this massive statement that time has a beginning. And the word itself says absolutely nothing as to when the beginning was, just that this is the beginning of the heavens and the earth. And so it refers to this first phase in the step of the beginning of the universe. I told you that we're going to get a little philosophical, we're going to get some history, we're going to get some archaeology, we're going to get lots of stories along the way. Let's just hit philosophy for just a moment. If ever something has a beginning, a starting point, then by necessity something must proceed it or it could not begin. Hear that again. If ever something has a beginning or a starting point, by necessity, something must precede it or it could not begin. If you think back to your grade school days, maybe even in junior high, you learned about the laws of physics. There's the law of causality. The laws of causality means that every effect has a cause. If, for instance, there was a cup of water sitting here on Michael's piano, and I, I reached for it, and I spilled it, not only would Michael be mad, but you'd say, wow, what a clumsy dude. But there'd be an effect, right? If the glass of water tipped over and the water fell, 
there'd be a cause to produce that effect. We understand that. It's very basic physics. We understand the philosophy behind that. So this understanding is that if ever there was something that had a beginning, something must have preceded it. Something had to trigger it. Something had to initiate the something that there is now. And that brings the next stage of information in what's recorded in Genesis 1.1. We're told, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God in Genesis 1. Now, I mentioned that we would come back to this thought of time. For something to have a beginning, there has to be a starting point. We just said that something must precede it. Well, the Bible and science actually agree. Time has a beginning point. Although many in modern science are actually a little confused as to what that causes, Genesis declares that in the era before time, the cause for the beginning of time is God. So look closely at the statement. Bereshit Elohim, in the beginning God, which logically means this. God must exist before time in order for him to create time. It means this. God has no starting point. Right? So Dr. Tony Evans, famous for recording, don't try and figure it out. Look at the quote on the screen. Dr. Tony Evans said, it'll drive you stark raving mad if you try and go back far enough to imagine what was it like when there was nothing. Well, there, there's never been nothing. There's always been God. See, these things point to the reality that God exists outside of time as we know it. So to say that God exists before time and outside of time is this mind-numbing conundrum because all we know is time. That's all we've ever existed in. Yet, if you'll bear with me on this illustration... There is a time, or maybe more appropriately, an era coming when time will be completely irrelevant to you because you will be in eternity with God, just as Abraham is, just as your ancestors are. There is a time when it will be completely irrelevant to you, but for now, we dwell in time. Because God saw fit to gift us with a part of his creation we call time. It's something our minds can handle and our minds are finite, but yet we can grasp that. So when calling heaven and earth into existence, he calls time into existence. Let's go back one last time to the statement in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. We're only going to get four words down today. If you think this study in the book of Genesis and the rest of the Bible is going to take a long time, I'm not going to do four words per Sunday, just telling you. But this one is so foundational, it lays the groundwork for everything else. In the beginning, God, what is that statement there, God? It's the word Elohim. Now, in the Hebrew language, it's absolutely fascinating that God moved in Moses' heart to write this down in this way because it's written down in the plural form. Just let your mind go with that. There's this fantastic array of thoughts that should be popping in your mind right now. It's speaking of God, Elohim, in the plural sense. When you begin thinking of the Trinity, 
you find in the very first sentence in the second word of the Bible that already we see that God is not singular, plural. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and it'll come out in verse 2 again. This is absolutely resounding throughout the New Testament as the writers of the New Testament describe Jesus, speaking of God the Son who became Jesus the man. Look at the way that Jesus is described in terms of eternality. Colossians 1.17. You saw this in the last couple of weeks when we talked about the wrath of God. He is before all things. So God has no beginning whatsoever. He always has been, and he dwells in the absence of time. And this attribute is called his eternality. So back to the conversation with Moses now. Moses is on Sinai, and he's talking to God. And he's heard this self-described name of God. God has declared, I am that I am. And the verb am is very, very important because it means that God exists in the present. It means he has no past. It means he has no future as we know it. He exists in the present forever. Thus, he says, I am that I am, or from eternity to eternity. Follow the line of thought on this. He doesn't say, I was, and he doesn't say, I will be. Because if we use the phraseology, I will be, we will say things like this. I will lose some weight. I will get better grades. I will put more money away from my retirement. I will practice better eating. That means we have room for improvement. That means we want things in our life that would make us better. He also doesn't say, I was, saying I used to be this, but now I'm this. But he says, I am, because he never changes. His eternality means nothing can improve him. Time does not change him, because he created time. Circumstances do not change him, because he controls all circumstances. He's forever. So nothing ever changes him. He's eternal. So the writers of the Bible really understood this, and, and they grasped this, and they began describing things like this, recording God's own words. Watch Malachi. He's a prophet, and he writes down the thing that God actually said to Malachi, Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. I can't get my mind around that because I change constantly. I, I morph. I adapt. I have to. You have to. We learn. We gain new information. We gain understanding. But this truth of his unchanging eternality is why the ancients actually called him their rock. Watch the New Testament example of this. It says this in James 1.17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. I hope this morning that you find comfort in that reality, that there's no change in God because he's not going to change his mind about redeeming you and bringing you into eternity and forgiving you of your sins. It also means there's no fixing God. People want to fix me constantly. Can you identify with that? The people in your life who tell you, you should do this and you should do this, and if you only did this. And people want to bring things to me to fix me, and some of it's deserved because we're broken and we're flawed. 
I could tell you over the last year and a half, COVID really brought that out. People wanted to fix each other. You do this or you do this. And individuals assert that authority over each other. I get lots of suggestions on how I can do things better. Just teach on the wrath of God for two weeks and you'll hear about it, right? People will tell you. Or hit a series of hard questions over 18 weeks. But know this, there's no flaws with an eternal God. He does not gain greater knowledge and he's never surprised. So don't think that you surprise God by the decisions that you make. He may be disappointed, but he's never surprised. So when it comes to our sphere, we experience it as a succession of events. We are linear. And because we're linear, we look from moment to moment. We're very aware of our past. We're very aware that there might be a future for us, and we're living in the present. And because we know there's a future, we know there's variables coming at us, and we have to adapt. You might have to do something different tomorrow than what you expected to do. In eternity, there's no succession of moments. Time is not clicking by for God. He sees all time equally. He sees it vividly, and he sees it in its entirety. In other words, just picture, the, picture this. He can see the moment of your birth at the same time he can see the moment you step into eternity. Time is irrelevant for him. So he watches you throughout the scope of your life, also seeing every moment in between your birth and the moment you step into eternity. That's your God. So God stands above time, and he sees it as present. Because of this, he always knows the end from the beginning. He's seeing it right now in this very moment, and he's not surprised by it. If that were not true, he would not be sovereign. Okay, that's philosophy. That's big picture thinking here. In regards to our realm and our time on this planet, although God acts outside of time because he is outside of time, he also acts within our confinement of time, but he acts with zero limitations. There's things that limit me. Time, space, matter, energy. There's things that I would love to do. But I have to deal with time, space, matter, energy. And I don't have any superpowers. I know that's a shock to my kids, but it's true. You don't either. There's things that we would love to do, but we don't have the ability to overcome these things. God is not limited by space. He's not limited by matter. He's not limited by time because he spoke it into existence. Because God has no limits, there is no limit to what he can do. Say amen if you agree with that. There's no limit to him saving you. Therefore, when it comes to stepping into the fabric of time in the first century and choosing to allow himself to arrive as an embryo in the womb of a teenage girl who's shocked out of her mind? What are you telling me? I'm a virgin. How could I have a child? Let alone it's going to be the Messiah. The angel Gabriel can respond emphatically the same way that you just did, Luke 1.37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing holds God back. 
So when it comes to saving you for eternity, nothing is impossible with God, regardless of what you did 10 years ago or 10 days ago or yesterday, when you feel you're disqualified and God couldn't possibly forgive you for that thing. Scripture says otherwise. As a human, I am really prone to forget that truth because we begin panicking over our discomforts. Things come into our life, an illness, a job loss, a a relationship breaks up, and we begin thinking, God, do you not like me? Why are you doing this to me? Thinking that God's bringing something against us because he's angry. And as a human, I'm prone to forget this truth that God is over eternity and nothing is impossible with him. And I often forget that this life is only temporary. Do you know the Bible actually calls your body a tent? It's that temporary? An earthen vessel, a clay jar? James 4.14 reflects this. Look with me. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. It's just talking about a vapor. Or this one, 2 Corinthians 4.17, our momentary light affliction produces for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Your afflictions don't feel so light, though, do they? They don't feel so temporary. They feel like they're never going to end because we've got the perspective of this planet. So I have to be reminded of the eternality of God before I can ever really know the God of the Bible, that my very short life on this planet is just a vapor, but eternity waits in store for me. How long is forever? I heard it illustrated this way one time. An individual said that if a bird left South Carolina with one grain of sand in its beak, and it could fly all the way to Colorado to the Great Plains and drop that one grain of sand, and every thousand years it would bring one more grain of sand back. By the time that grain of sand grew to a mountain as high as the Rocky Mountains, eternity will have only just begun. That's one visual for me. That helps me imagine something, but I have something so much more practical because I'm linear and I'm visual and I learned this when I was 14 years old because I remember seeing this illustration. I thought, I'll do this for you. I brought in here a rope. So imagine, if you will, you don't really have to imagine a thousand-foot rope. And this beginning point, when everything exploded by the Word of God into existence, is just the beginning. And we go along and we find this moment in time with this piece of black tape where Moses encountered God on Mount Sinai. And they had the conversation that we just discussed. And you go a few thousand years more forward in time and you find where you arrived on planet Earth. And there you are. You're really cute as a baby. And there's where you drove your car for the first time. And there's the Michigan-Michigan State game coming up in two weeks. Look at that score. I'm not telling. Wow. There's the moment when you step into eternity, and the rest of this rope is eternity. Just bear with me. 
takes a long time to walk a thousand feet. Is this thing ever going to end? I don't think so. Condo in Florida doesn't look so important now, does it? <laughs> wow. Huh. When does this thing stop? Oh, there it is. Goes around the stage and goes out the curtain, goes behind the stage, goes out the back door, goes out on Saginaw, heads down to the Capitol building. See, the point is it never stops. It's eternity. It's eternal. And we base all of our efforts in that little black spot, all of our energies. We forget about that eternal perspective. Where are you currently at on that white rope? My Bible says this, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. But maybe you've never looked at this verse this way before. Look at this, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, eternity in Christ Jesus our Lord. You, you, get, you get eternity. And we put so much focus and we stress so much over that little small section. I know the issues of today are real. I know they burden us. But God says when we take lightly the eternal life freely offered to us in Jesus, what we're doing is we're diminishing him. We're actually treating God with contempt. I'm going to take you back in time to 1675 to the writings of a Puritan. This particular individual, Stephen Charnock, in 1675, recorded some really interesting thoughts around the issue of eternity. But I just want to give you a sentence. Let me put this on the screen for you. Bear with the old English here. He that thinks unworthily of God or acts unworthily toward him doth sully and destroy these two perfections of his immutability, and eternity. What does it mean to sully something, to put it in a position where it's less than? How do I do that? When I begin embracing the things of this life to a greater degree than the God of this universe, contempt. If we love a perishing thing greater than we love the eternal God, we show contempt. When we prefer man's opinions over God, contempt. Last week, we looked at the life of Eli, 
with his two sons, Phinehas and Hophni. And God had to call Eli out and say to him, you're preferring your sons over me. You're honoring your sons over me. Therefore, I have to bring it on you, Eli. When we choose to honor culture over God, contempt, we're debasing his eternality. So Charnock goes on to say an amazing statement, just a couple words. Look at this. All sin is aggravated by God's eternity. Now you really need to chew on that statement. All sin is aggravated by God's eternity. Why is that true? Now that will be a really good lunchtime conversation for you or an evening conversation or in your small groups this week as you're working through this booklet. Why is that true that all sin is aggravated by God's eternity? Because of this. Because all sin stems from an inadequate, low view of God's eternality. There is this nature, and it's insidious. There is this nature in sin of this tendency to reduce God to less than or to not being. How do I do that? When we sin intentionally, and by intentionally, I don't mean when you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off in traffic and you get mad and you flip them off or you shout a word out that you shouldn't shout out. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about intentional sin where we enter into it willingly, knowingly, predetermined to think in our mind, God's not really going to care about this. Or if he does, he'll just wink. I'm a Christian. He'll forgive me. I'm under grace, right? When we enter into intentional sin and we think that God doesn't care, we debase him. There's an axiom that we repeat. If you're new to New Hope, it, it's been said many, many, many times over the 14 years of our history, and it goes like this. What you believe about God determines what you do. I actually would expand it a little further out and say, what you believe about God determines what you do next. What you believe about God determines what you do. You, you measure it out, you watch in the course of your day. What you believe about God impacts every single decision you will make. And this is never truer than when it comes to the issue of the eternality of God. If you believe that God is eternal and he is the eternal God, it must impact every decision that you make. Our challenge is this, and I face it too. We live in a world where we put down really deep roots here, and it calls to us every day. But God calls me to keep an eternal perspective. He actually commands that I live with eternity in view. That if I would keep this perspective I would be following his commands. Now, the reason he has to command it is because it doesn't come natural to us. He has to call us to do it. So he says, set your mind on the things above. Look with me at the screen at this. Colossians 3, 2. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. If you're going to set your mind on the things that are above, you're going to be choosing to focus on that thing. So an eternal perspective is going to keep you from chasing empty things, and it's going to keep you from stressing over the issues that really don't matter in the scope of eternity. So think of that thousand-foot rope, or the one that actually goes into eternity, 
It never stops. And it symbolizes your experience on life on earth and, and into eternity. In our human nature, we're prone to focus all of our energy on that black tape and we forget about the rest of the rope. How do I gain an eternal perspective? Uh, I put four little points in your notes this morning. This is taking us right into the end here. Watch this come up on the screen. They're going to go pretty quick. Make sure, first of all, make sure you are born again. Eternity waits for everyone. Say amen if you agree with that. Okay, the reason you can say amen on that and make it true is eternity does wait for everyone. The question is, where are you going to spend eternity? Heaven or hell? Eternity waits for everyone. And you can say amen to that because it's true. God says he created us as eternal beings in the sense that we will never go out of existence. The question is, where will our existence be? The Bible says only those who trust in Jesus to take away their sin will spend eternity in heaven. Jesus actually said this himself, John 3, 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Second one, if you've submitted to Jesus as your Savior, that means the Holy Spirit has moved into your life. That means the Holy Spirit is beginning this transforming work in you. The discipline, number two, I think is the biggest one on this issue of how you keep an eternal perspective. Number two, this issue, this, this discipline actually determines the degree to which we will live with an eternal perspective. This is the part of the work of God called sanctification. When we willingly turn from sinful behavior and set our mind, we choose to put our mind on the things above. And so I would ask, and the third component is, where is your treasure? Where is your focus? Where are you putting your energies? Because that eternal perspective allows you to invest time and energy and resources in God's kingdom. The treasure that we invest in eternity are things that are done for Jesus. So you might remember this summer when we gave out bottles of water for people to give out to homeless people on the streets. Because Jesus said, even a cup of water given in my name, that produces an echo in eternity. It produces eternal rewards, even if you give cup of water in the name of Jesus. So where is your treasure? And here's the fourth one. Spend time with God in prayer and in his word. Most of us do not know people, nor do we personally eat only one meal a week. We'd fade away. Here's a little secret for you. I fast every week. On Saturday morning, I stop eating, usually around noon, lunchtime, and I don't eat again until Sunday afternoon. But I'm telling you, by 2 o'clock, somebody better be bringing me a taco. And the reason I do that is it keeps me focused, it keeps me sharp, it, it keeps me alert to the things of God, but it's a discipline that I've taught myself over years and years. But I couldn't go a whole week without a meal. Many people treat prayer and God's Word like, I only need this once in a while. And we pray very quickly before a meal, or we post a verse online, and we think, that's good, I'm, I'm good with that. But I can tell you, in earnest truth, coming before God and inviting Him to reveal areas in your life that are not fully surrendered to Him, just saying that right out loud, God, I think there might be some things you need to point out to me. 
Will you search me and know me? David actually, King David had to say that to God. Search me and know me and show me if there's any wicked way in me. When you're that honest with God, the Holy Spirit will point out to you these things that you need to work on. And in that moment, when you confess those issues to him as a weakness, it will serve to keep your priorities in line with God's priorities. Now, here's a fifth one. It's not in your notes. It's just I'm going to add it in for extra credit. Remember where your permanent address is. Your permanent address is his presence. He's made his presence, eternity, your permanent address. Your forever home has been prepared for you personally by the one who breathes stars into existence. That means there's no low-income housing in God's world. He only builds mansions, and he's invited you to be part of that world with him. These things deserve really careful, long meditation. Because you're contemplating God's actions in this world. And it's hard and it is humbling. But I promise you there is no other study that will expand your mind like what we're about to do in E2E. In eternity to eternity will not be easy peasy, milk toast, mush. It's going to be the meat of the word. And we need the meat of the word in order to have solid food. So meditating on these things allows us to forget our mediocre and mundane passing distractions of this world and focus our attention where it belongs. Hear that again. It allows us to forget the mediocre and mundane passing distractions of this world. The scores and the statistics of the afternoon football games today, especially the Detroit Lions, will be quickly forgotten. Turn off the news. I promise you, the political issues of today will be here on Wednesday. Shut those things out. Put aside the mundane, the mediocre, and focus on the eternality of God and remember, this eternal life that we're talking about, it's already yours. Did you know that? It already belongs to you if you're in Jesus. You just haven't yet realized it. It's not something you wait for. If you're in Jesus, it belongs to you now. Let me put this on the screen for you. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, and this is Jesus saying, pay attention. He actually hammers it. Pay attention, pay attention. That's truly, truly. Amen, amen. It's true, true. I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. It's yours right now. It's your present possession. So finish out the verse. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. You better be saying amen on that one. That is a great truth. You're not under the judgment of God. You're under the mercy and the grace of God if you're in Jesus Christ. If we have Christ, we have his life now. I'm here to ask you, are you living as one who has eternity as their destiny? Or are you still caught up in living for the things of this world? If anything should have taught us 
The reality of these truths, it's this past year and a half in which we discovered, I don't really know what tomorrow brings. I know the one who brings the future. I know the Lord God. But what I know about tomorrow on this planet, I don't know what it holds, and it can change on a dime. There is only one who holds your true tomorrow, and that's the Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And we're about to explore his nature and his character and how it impacts our life. So I close with this Bible verse. Thought about this for a long time. How do you wrap up this launch of E2E? I chose this, Colossians 3.1. If you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. And I told you to set your mind on something is to choose to focus on it. So here comes the last part, verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. The one who created you. The Bible says that's the Lord Jesus Christ. For in him all things hold together, all things have their being. How amazing is this journey that we're about to step into. Let's pray together, church. Father, where your word has brought refreshment, we thank you. And where your word has brought encouragement, we thank you. And where it's brought conviction, we thank you. You bring conviction to us because you want to warn us and correct us. We thank you for the promises and we thank you for the encouragement, but we also thank you for the correcting. We pray that our lives would actually be aligned with your purposes and that tomorrow would be a reflection of that and Wednesday and Thursday and Saturday, that the things that we choose to be involved in would not be putting contempt toward you, but rather would be honoring you as we keep eternity in perspective. I pray, Father, I pray for your blessing on us of having spent time together, those who are at home right now and those who are in this auditorium, that you would send us out with your blessing resting on us for having heard these things and actually acted on these things. Use us, God. We pray for that in this upcoming week. We don't know what it holds, but you do. So we ask that you would use us for the glory and the name and the exaltation and the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.